This week on Myths and Legends, there are two grim-ish fairy tales. On the first, you'll see that all you need to become a medical doctor is confidence and no formal training whatsoever. On the second, you'll see how the best drinking buddy of your whole life might just be death. The creatures this time are the wise women of the forest who will turn their unfathomable anger on you if you go after their pets. Which animals in the forests are their pets? Well, they'll let you know by hunting you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 250, Phosicians. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This was originally supposed to be a complete grim episode, but then I found the doctor theme that I like better. And then I found a variation of a grim tale that was even better than the grim version. So here we are. Two stories of kind of, but not really doctors. The first story today was collected by the Grimm brothers. It's of the time a guy named Crab decided to follow his dreams. Hey, Crab, the doctor said to Crab, the man who delivered the firewood. What, uh, what's up, bud? Crab had been late that day, and as such, he dropped off the wood just as the village doctor and his wife were sitting down for dinner. He thanked the doctor for the money, and then he made the mistake that would define the rest of his life. He looked back and kept looking for, like, five whole minutes. The doctor and his wife sat at the table, and the doctor was content to let Crab just go through whatever he was going through in his doorway. But his wife nudged him. The doctor knew the guy. Say something. So the doctor wiped his mouth, took a big guzzle of ale, and walked over to Crab. Crab held back sobs for exactly one moment, and then the dam burst. He buried his face in his hands, and then the doctor's shirt... He said he saw the doctor's food and drink, his house. Crab cried that he should have been a doctor. He could have worked with his mind instead of his hands. Breaking his back, cutting wood every day, and driving it into town. The doctor said that, hey, hey, it's okay, bud. Crab's job wasn't so bad. Crab replied that he literally worked in the dark forest. There were actual ogres out there trying to eat him every day of his life. Water monsters trying to pull him under every time he walked by the river. He collapsed into sobs on the doctor's floor. The doctor sighed, glancing back at his dinner growing colder by the moment. He pulled Crab up from the ground. He shut the door. He confirmed that Crab was from the next town over, right? The man sniffled and nodded. The doctor took a deep breath. All right, time to let Crabby here in on a little secret. He, too, could be a doctor. Crab said, yeah, Maybe if he had the time and money for med school, if he could even get in. The doctor laughed. Did Crab think he went to medical school? Crab said the man was a doctor, so yes. If he went to medical school, did Crab think he would be practicing here? He regularly gets paid in chickens and firewood. Did Crab know what the credentialing process was for this time period? It's literally just calling yourself a doctor. He glanced at Crab's attire. Well, that looking the part. 
He told Crabb to take note of what he was saying. He needed to get three things to be a doctor. First, there was a really solid ABC book. It had a rooster on it. It would help him talk like a doctor, and he could open it up and reference it when he was with patients. They ate that up. It was great. Second, he should go to the city and get a white coat, one of those reflector things for your head, a doctor bag with all the tools, a bone saw. Selling his wood cart and horse should cover it. Third, get a sign made that said, I am Dr. Know-all, and put it in front of your house, and boom, you're a doctor. Crab said he didn't know about this. Was this legal? The doctor laughed again. Of course it was legal. Ethical? Well, he wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't that type of doctor. Crab was about to say that he didn't seem to be any type of doctor, but the man cut him off. This town has been part of four different kingdoms in the last 100 years. Going around and making sure every doctor in every town's credentials are up to snuff, or existent, is really low on their priority list. Do you concur? Crab said he... What did that mean? The doctor chuckled. He didn't know, but it was in the ABC book that made him sound doctory. Now, if Crab didn't mind, it was time for him to get back to dinner. Good luck out there. Doctor, the doctor said, closing the door, and Crab marveled at his luck. He had arrived at the house a woodcutter, but he was leaving a medical doctor. Why did that guy just leave our house covered in leeches? Gret asked her husband, Crab when she returned from town. Also, who is Dr. Know-all and what are you wearing? She looked the house over. Uncomfortable chairs, months-old magazines. Wait, was he pretending to be a doctor? Crab closed his ABC book. Oh, dear wife, no. I am a doctor. Next patient, please. A coughing man scurried up to Crab, holding his wounded arm. And Crab took him in the patient room, a.k.a. their kitchen. The appointment was over quickly. Crab's treatment was to put some alcohol on it. Sorry, alcohol in it. In him, Dr. Noel clarified, saying that the man should drink ale until he felt better, and the man left satisfied with the prescription. Gret watched as Dr. Crab saw patient after patient, prescribing some level of bloodletting or drunkenness to all of them. Finally, the last patient of the day sat. He was a man dressed in silks, hat in his hands. Crab said that the doctor would see him now, and the man rose. Was he really Dr. Know-all? Did he know all? <laughs> Dr. Crab smirked. The man could read the sign out front, couldn't he? The stranger nodded. The man in the waiting room continued, for such an educated man, the following task should be easy. He was a nobleman, a very wealthy nobleman, but a ring that had been in his family for generations had been stolen from him. Surely, a man who knew all should be able to recover the stolen ring. Crab nodded. Yes, indubitably. He checked his ABC book. Yeah, that made sense. He nodded again. Yes, inscrutably, he smiled. Then you must come with me immediately, the nobleman stated. The good doctor could eat and stay at his manor this evening while he worked on the mystery. Crab raised a finger. He would leave this instant. Gret had to step in. Now wait, doctor, she said, pulling her husband aside. Being a doctor with the locals was one thing, but Crab cut her off. Where were his manners? He turned to the nobleman. His wife must come along with him. The nobleman nodded. Of course. 
Crab grabbed Gret by the arm, and together they boarded the carriage with the nobleman. Crab, Gret whispered. Crab shook his head. He was Dr. Know-all. Yeah, for a week, Gret muttered. It was a fancy dinner party where all the assembled nobles, the lords, dukes, duchesses, and many other titles Crab pretended to know talked about the most recent news. The nobleman who hosted them had been robbed. The nobleman rose and rested his hands on Crab's shoulders. That's why the good doctor was here. This was Dr. Know-all. He knew all. He would reveal the identity of the thief tonight. Dr. Know-all wrinkled his brow smugly and forced a smile. Yes, yes, dubitancy. The table chuckled politely, not sure what was going on. But then, the door from the servant's stairwell swung open. Ah, my dear, Crab said to Gret, gesturing to the platter of food being carried by the waiter. This is the first one, he said, pointing to the man. The man froze. The conversation at the table stopped. The servant's mouth hung open while he stared at Dr. Know-all. Well, why aren't you serving my guests? The nobleman barked at the servant. Shaking, the waiter placed the plates in front of the assembled nobles, and Crab and Grat, and fled the room. Why did you say that? Grat asked Crab as they began eating the first dish. I, I was just explaining how fancy dinners worked. They have something called courses, and this was the first one. He knew that this was her first fancy dinner so he wanted to make sure she was up to speed. Um, I saw you googling fancy dinners on your phone on the carriage ride over, and this is your first fancy dinner too, bud, Gret said with a head shake. The party chatted about this and that until the door opened up again. Crab turned to Gret, who gave him this look that said, don't do it, don't you do it. He did it. He nudged his wife and pointed to the food. This, my dear, is the second one. The table looked to Crab, who smirked again. He was sorry his little provincial wife didn't get to go to the same fancy dinners as him. Gret clenched her jaw. Thank you. Thank you so much, honey. Gret, unlike her husband, knew the gravity of the situation. It was likely a myth that nobles in Western Europe could just legally beat or kill a peasant for no reason, but misrepresenting yourself as Dr. Nowall in a noble's home... All bets were off at that point. By the time the third servant came in with a third course, and Dr. Know-all announced it for Gret, everyone could agree that he knew his fancy dinners. Before the shaky and shocked third servant revealed the dish, the nobleman held out his hand, indicating that the man should halt. He wanted to play a little game. He turned to the good doctor. Dr. Know-all, he said. You do know all, right? The doctor laughed, of course, inconceivably. The noble cocked his head, all right. Uh, how about a demonstration? If he knows all, he should be able to tell the table what tonight's dinner is. The people looked at Dr. Know-all. Oh, yeah. Gret facepalmed. Welp, here it was. She might as well start mentally preparing herself for starving in one of those hanging cages outside of town. Crab, for the first time at the dinner, stopped Mr. Magooing his way through polite society and realized that he was truly in over his head. He began to sweat. He sat back and crossed his arms, staring blankly at the platter in front of him. Oh, oh no. This was bad. Doctor? Doctor Know-all, 
the nobleman asked, as his guest began to tremble. Crab didn't even hear him. Oh, Crab, he said to himself. Oh, Crab, what did you get yourself into? The table gasped. But before Crab could break down and say that, yes, he was a fraud, his medical school consisted of a nice coat, a bone saw, and an ABC book, the servant's shaking hand raised the cover on the main course. They were crab legs. The whole table stood, clapping for the man who truly was Dr. Knowall. The nobleman's ring was as good as back. Crab, though, needed a minute. Could he and his wife know where the restrooms were? Gret, though, shook her head. Nah, this was amazing crab, and if this was her last meal, she was going to enjoy it. Nice save, though. Doctor, Crab swallowed hard, listened to the directions to the bathroom, and left the room. He didn't make it 20 paces down a hallway until rough hands grabbed his wrists and a sack slipped over his head. His feet were kicked out from under him, and he was dragged from the house. Why is there a bag on his head? One voice said. He's Dr. Knowall. That's the problem. He knows who we are. The bag pulled away. Crab blinked in the candlelight. Where? Wait. He knew these guys. The servant who served the first course said, See? The doctor knew who they were. That was the problem. The servant knelt down to where Crab was tied to the chair. He apologized for the actions of his co-conspirators. It was their first kidnapping and they got carried away. He loosened the ropes and Crab rubbed his wrists. Who... Who were they? The servant sighed. Yeah. Who was he indeed? He was a lifelong servant who wanted more, so much more that he stole from his master. Now he didn't recognize who he was when he looked in a mirror, mainly because mirrors are still pretty rare at this point in Western Europe. Wow, though. Dr. Knowall wasn't just knowledgeable. He was wise, too. The servant wasn't going to be a murderer. He shook his head at the servant behind Crab, the one who had served the second course, and his co-conspirator, tiptoeing up with a garrote. The servant looked back to Crab. Could he show mercy on them? They would give the ring back and pay Crab for his silence. I mean, the nobleman's ring was way too hot to fence anyway. Could the doctor understand how difficult it was being a peasant in this time period? Crab nodded. Oh, he understood. He was a pet. He stopped himself. He was pleasantly aware of their plight. The servant said that it was, the servant said that that was kind of a mean way to recognize it, but they did kidnap him and bind him, so they let it go. Basically, they had their savings here. How much silver and gold would it take for Dr. Knowall to come to a different conclusion? We'll see the conclusion to our story, and Crab definitely not mess everything up once again, but that will be right after this. When Crab returned to the dinner 10 or 20 minutes later, with a jingle in his pocket, the group was well on to dessert. Crab sat down, Announcing that he had returned, he turned to his host. If the man was ready, he would reveal who stole the nobleman's ring. Just then, 
The door from the kitchen opened and the dog walked out. He had cake on his face. Dr. Knowall pointed to the Lord's favorite hound. Crab turned to the noble. The dog ate the ring a few days ago and definitely not just right now in the kitchen when the servants gave it to him in a piece of cake. The nobleman looked on the dog and frowned. Ah, this was inconvenient. It was his favorite dog. Crab replied that it was fine, just wait a few days and the ring would come back out and um, why was the nobleman drawing his dagger? The nobleman didn't want to wait a few days to have his family ring come out of the dog that way. And um, yeah, a few minutes later, the nobleman held up the bloody ring to Crab, Grat, and the servant's shock and his dinner guest's applause and announced that the man was truly Dr. Knowall. Crab grabbed Gret's hand and asked if he could get his reward right away and leave, please. He solved the mystery and definitely wasn't scared of the man who would eviscerate his favorite hound at dinner to get his ring back a few days early. The nobleman shrugged and agreed. And Crab and Gret got out of there as quickly as possible. They were famous and rich enough that neither had to work for the rest of their lives, but they never solved mysteries for nobles again. Most of the story comes to us from the Grimm brothers, but I took the ending from a Danish version, because in the Grimm version, despite making a deal with the thieves, Crab is led into the kitchen, where one of them is hiding in an oven, listening, and Crab consults his ABC book for some reason, looking for the rooster. When he can't find it and demands that it come out, one of the thieves rushes from the oven, revealing the hiding place of the stolen goods, despite having agreed on a cover-up. The dog thing, though legitimately horrifying, not only helps Crab to understand just how out of his depth he is, but also works as an easy way for everyone to come out okay. I mean, until the nobleman draws his knife. The second story today is a Norwegian tale. It's a variation of the Grimm Brothers tale, Godfather Death. This one has a far less ominous name. It's called The Boy with the Ale Keg. The boy left his master. It was time for him to strike out on his own. He demanded his payment for years of work, and the uh, preteen boy walked away with a giant keg of ale. You see, he'd been working for a master brewer who made ale unlike any in the world. It wasn't magical or anything, but it might as well be. It was his special winter brew, his Yule ale, and as opposed to years and years worth of pay that was owed to him, the boy opted for a keg. He didn't quite think it through, though, because as he left to find his fortune, he realized that giant kegs are giant. Who knew? He rolled it on for as far as he could, but eventually he ended up in the forest, where the road grew narrow and uneven. He had to pick up the keg and carry it on his back. So he decided that he should lighten his load a bit and have a drink but he didn't want to drink alone. Just then, he heard footsteps ahead of him, a man walking through the trees. He was clean with a long, white beard. He looked on the child and nodded. They exchanged good days, and the keg shifted under the boy's shrug. Eh, why not? Hey, I'm looking for someone to drink with me and lighten my keg, he offered. The traveler lit up. If it was all the same to the boy, 
He would drink with this child in the woods. The boy rested the keg on the ground. All right. He asked the stranger what kind of man he was. The stranger smiled and said, I am the Lord, God, I come from heaven. And as he said those words, he radiated light. The animals of the forest seemed to sing sweeter. And the sun's rays shot from parting clouds in the sky. Pass, the boy said, grunted, and hefted the keg back up. The light stopped radiating. The forest grew silent and the clouds formed once again. Pass, the boy said, yeah, sorry. God makes distinctions between people on earth. Everything's uneven down here. Some are so rich that they have more money than they could ever spend. Others' families are poor for generations. So yeah, hard pass. Without giving God any time to respond, the boy continued on. The boy narrowed his eyes at the next stranger. It was a tall, slender, well-dressed man in a top hat with a mustache he wouldn't stop twirling. Okay, tell me a little bit about yourself, the boy asked. The man grinned, oh me? I'm the devil. No, the boy replied, come on. He barely even paused. The devil pleaded, why not? That was the Yule Ale. It was so good. If I take such issue with inequality that I'm going to refuse a drink with God, you really think I'm going to drink with the devil? You torment people for fun and you plague the poor. Any unhappiness is because of you, the boy said. The devil left the boy to continue on with this too heavy keg of ale and didn't try to make a deal for it or steal it because he might be the devil, but he's not the devil. Oh, wait, no, he, uh, he is. Still, with God around, he didn't want to linger. He used to work for that guy, and it did not end well. A long time after, the boy chanced on a third traveler. The boy was almost so tired that he would drink with anyone, and he was delighted to learn that the stranger was neither God nor the devil, but death. Finally, someone reasonable, the boy said to the gaunt stranger, whose glowing eyes were barely visible under his deep black hood. Death was surprised that this kid was receptive to him. Almost no one ever offered him beer. They were all running in terror and pleading. The kid said no, he loved death. Of the cosmic travelers on this road, death was the fair one. He treated Everyone the same, rich and poor, we all meet death. The boy tapped the keg, took a couple of bowls from his pack, and the pair sat down for a drink. Or five. A few hours later, both the boy and death were singing and swaying, the Yule Ale sloshing in their cups. Both of them were pretty far gone. Death was about a hundred pounds soaking wet and hadn't eaten all day, and the boy was a child. Eventually, once the song stopped, Death said that this ale was the best he ever had. The boy said, I know, right? This was years of work for him. He was going to try to sell it and buy his way into an apprenticeship or something. He didn't know. But, you know, it'd work out. Death turned to the young boy. No, you're not. Doctor. Death slurred, rose, and went over to the keg. The boy was confused. Doctor? Death brought out an almost bony finger. Up, oh, I'ma do it. I'ma boop it. He touched the keg. Ah, I booped it. You didn't just like turn all my ale to poison, did you? The kid asked. Death's hood shook back and forth. Nope, 
the opposite. This ale is now the best medicine in the world. And you just went to death medical school. The boy replied that that didn't sound accredited, but okay. Death said that he was contracted to visit the bed of every sick person. And all the boy had to do was show up there. And if death was sitting at the person's foot, administer the ale and the person would be healed. The boy said, wow, thanks. And what about if death wasn't at the person's foot? Death replied that they were fated to die. Don't mess with it then. Uh, you know, blah, 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 fine print. If the boy went against death's wishes, death would take him. The boy couldn't begin to describe how grateful he was. He embraced death, thanking the man. And then he blinked. A mysterious wind blew at twilight. He was alone in the clearing. Oh, hey, you, you dozed off and I went to the bathroom, Death said, returning. He said thanks for the ale, but he really should get going. He was Death and this was the Middle Ages. He kept busy. We'll see what happens when you give a child limitless money and fame, but that, once again, will be right after this. The greatest doctor in the world was on his way because the princess was sick. Now in his early 40s, the child was no longer a child, but the most renowned doctor in the world. He only had to work pro bono a few times before establishing his reputation. It was lucky that his first few patients weren't fated for death, but soon he was known, at the age of like 13, as someone who could make an expert diagnosis and cure you if it was possible. As a teenager, he was rich beyond his wildest dreams. The kid, who had such strong negative feelings about inequality that he turned down a drink with God, had swung hard in the other direction and was now a big fan of inequality. More of that, please. I mean, as long as he was on the have side of the haves and have-nots. By the time the princess got sick, even death was a little sick of this guy. Now, though, the doctor saw the opportunity for not just limitless wealth and fame, but power as well. He could be king if only he saved the princess. It was the standard fairy tale deal, which was why the doctor was horrified to see death sitting at her head. The princess was one fated to die. So the boy raised his hands. You know what? He was done. He went to go talk to death, sitting by the princess's bed, just talking about this and that, how life was, and death narrowed his glowy eyes. The boy was being weirdly chatty. He had been cordial for years, but kind of only that. Cordial, you know, work polite. He made it very clear that they were only work friends. The kid, the doctor, said that he was done. He was retiring. He had enough money now. He was just going to live out his life in his six mansions. This was the last time death would see him, until his own end. The doctor pulled a flask out from his coat. Hey, since this was his last job, how about a drink for old time's sake? It wasn't ale, he was still using that as medicine. This was the good stuff. 
30 minutes later, Death nodded off and started snoring in the chair. When the boy lifted Death's arm and dropped it on the armrest, limp, the kid rose quickly and whispered for some servants. All right, do it. What they talked about, do it now. Instantly, a dozen men tiptoed into the room, grabbed the princess's bed on all sides, and spun it around to where the doctor said Death was sitting at her feet. The doctor immediately tipped a bowl of the ale up into the princess's mouth, and she drank. She gasped awake. The color had returned to her face. She was healed. The room cheered, and Death awoke. He immediately realized what had happened and rose to confront the boy, who only shook his head. What? He didn't know what Death was so mad about. He had fulfilled their agreement to the letter. He didn't give her the medicine until Death was at her foot. Death shook his head, his bony finger poking the doctor on the chest. The doctor knew exactly what he was doing. He went against their agreement. He was tired of this. Now the doctor was coming with him. About time, too. The doctor hung his head but then looked up. Death was a being of his word, right? A being of honor? Death nodded, yeah. That's what they initially bonded over in the forest. The boy knelt, taking Death's hand. He now saw that he had been horrible. He didn't want to go hopeless into the next life. Could he get a Bible and read the Lord's Prayer? Death sighed, ugh, this guy. <sighs> you know what? Sure. The doctor had been his friend once upon a time, and Death had wanted nothing more than the guy to change. It was a little late, but he would support this. Sure, go grab a Bible. And the boy did. He held up a Bible and began reading. Our Father, who art in heaven, he got all the way down to the end. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ah, the boy stopped. You know what? Let's put a pin in this. We'll come back to it. Death said, no, it was his time. Yes, but also no. See, you said that I could read the Lord's Prayer first, and I, I didn't get all the way through, so I can't go yet, the doctor replied. He closed the Bible with a thud and tossed it over his shoulder onto the bed behind him. He left death, fuming but a being of his word, standing by the foot of the bed. All right, wedding time. The morning after his wedding, the brewer's assistant turned doctor turned crown prince felt his new wife shaking him awake. Hey, uh, weird stuff, but there was painting on the ceiling? The doctor woke up, squinted, mouthed a confused word, gasped, and died right there in his bed. The princess screamed as her husband lay dead next to her and she didn't even look up. The castle guards would never know how it happened, but in their sleep, someone had painted the last word of the Lord's Prayer, Amen, above their bed. That was The Boy with the Ale Keg, a variant of the probably much more famous Godfather Death by the Grimm Brothers. The classic story of why you shouldn't try to cheat death. 
We have told the grim version on the member podcast. And I'd say it's different enough that if you're interested in that, please go check it out. Next week, there are two Christmas ghost stories from Scandinavia. Then we end the year with some Monkey King. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Necronomicon book cover, a book cover that looks like it could summon monsters from the dark dimensions, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make all your books look like they're about to summon a necromancer. Kind of a good thing, I'd say. Check out mythpodcast.com membership for more info on the membership. The creatures this week are the Buschfrauen, or forest women, from Germany. If your weekend plans include you baking bread with caraway seeds, telling people about that crazy dream you had, and peeling bark off some trees, I have some bad news for you. The forest women hate all of those things. Also, those are really specific, odd weekend plans. They don't like it when you peel bark off trees because it hurts the trees they live in. I don't know why they don't want you telling people about the dreams you had, other than that it can be sometimes kind of boring. And as for the caraway seeds, apparently spirits can't eat your bread then. They don't like the caraway seeds, which, I mean, did the spirits pay for the flour or help me make the bread? No. Stop expecting free bread, spirits. Oh, and the forest women also prefer that you don't count your dumplings when you cook them. Probably some more spirits can get more free meals. The forest women are short, golden-haired, shaggy-skinned women with, quote, pendulous breasts and hollow backs. If you listen to them, and essentially end up running a cafeteria for a spirit infestation, they will reward you in three ways. They'll reveal the secrets of herbal healing, they'll make plants grow by dancing, and they'll give away endless balls of yarn for your knitting. Their boss, Busch Grossmutter, that's just a shot in the dark in terms of pronunciation, is a white-haired forest woman who runs things when she's not running for her life. She's forever pursued by a mystical hunter who, once he spots her, pursues her relentlessly and only stops if she takes rest on a fallen tree with three crosses carved into it. So, if you want your plants to grow, endless yarn for your knitting, and herbal remedies of dubious effectiveness, take a carving knife into the woods with you. There's a similar creature in Scandinavia who knits socks and tells hunters which animals they can and can't kill. And if you hunted the wrong animal, well, the hunter became the hunted. In fact, up until the 17th century, real-life warrants listed involvements with these creatures as a cause of death. They're also called, quote, a troll hag in Scandinavia, which definitely not worthy of death, but if you're going to call a mythological creature a troll hag to their face, you're pretty much taking your life in your hands. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.